Well, good morning. Um, good morning at home as well. My name is uh, Doug O'Donnell. Uh, great to step in for Jeff kind of last minute. Um, I have been a pastor for many years, but uh, last three months I started at Crossway um, working with David, actually. Uh, he's on the book side. I'm on the Bible side. So Jeff knew I'd be available on weekends. So uh, he contacted me late this week and said, can you preach? said, urgent on the top of the email. So I'm glad to be here. Glad to fill in for such a wonderful friend of mine. Uh, we went to college together, Jeff and I and Jen, my wife Emily. Um, and great to be behind your massive pulpit, Jeff. I'm very impressed by this. Well, let's begin with a word of prayer. Uh, Father in heaven, we uh, worship and praise your holy name for your wonderful plan of salvation. Thank you for sending Jesus the word who was with you before the world began. He came to earth willingly in human flesh so that sinners such as we may be redeemed by his precious blood. Lord, as we look now at this familiar Advent text, remind us of Christmas. Open our eyes to Christmas and help us to rejoice in Christmas. We ask in your name and for your glory. Amen. Uh, many years ago, before my family moved overseas, uh, like the Zigglers, we moved over to Australia, just a different, different region of the world, a section of Australia there. Uh, we had a, a moving sale, a book moving sale where I had a whole wall of books in our house that were priced and ready to go. Now, during the sale, a man walked in and he asked if I had any philosophy books. And as I was escorting him over to this very small philosophy section, he asked me, do you have any Wittgenstein? And I immediately replied, no, I don't. After the man left, my wife Emily said to me, do you even know who Wittgenstein is? And I said, of course I do. And I went on to uh, defend my intellectual credentials, uh, ending that by saying, I even know that his name starts with a W, not a V. Well, she wasn't impressed, never is. Well, my dearly beloved wife and the dearly beloved bride of Christ, as I was reading just the other day through Tractatus Logicus Philosophicus by Wittgenstein, I came across a very sensible sentence. The solution, he wrote, to the riddle of life and time and space lies outside of time and space. Indeed, how marvelous. However, shortly thereafter, Wittgenstein quelled my enthusiasm for his philosophical insight with the following sentence. God does not reveal himself in the world in time and space. The solution to the problem lies outside, and yet God does not reveal himself to us on the inside, on earth. Well, the Apostle John, he couldn't agree more with the first sentence and less with the second. In his absolutely marvelous and somewhat philosophical prologue, he teaches us that the solution to the riddle of life in time and space is when God revealed himself in the God-man, Jesus Christ, in time and in space. And this morning, I want to explore what John has to say about that, what he has to say about the incarnation, but also what he has to say to us by means of exhortation. And here he teaches us, in these first 18 verses of his gospel, he teaches us to wake up, to wake up, to believe in, and to speak out. To wake up, to believe in, and to speak out. The first exhortation I call, wake up, because I want us, as John wants us, to wake up to the spiritual death and darkness that is all around us. 
Throughout John's writings, and, and you know this, he, he contrasts light with darkness, truth with lies, love with hate, life with death. And in verses 1 through 11, it's this contrast of, of light and life with darkness and death. But before we get to the darkness and death, let's begin as John begins with light and life, the light and life of God in Christ. Look again at verses 1 through 5. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, the three questions I want us to ask here for these first five verses. First, who is the word? Second, who is the word? And third, you might have guessed it, who is the word? I'll ask, I'll ask and answer the first question first. First, who is the word? Well, the word is Jesus. We all know this because we know the content of John's gospel, but also verse 29, uh, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him. So the word is Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. The second, who is, who is the word? Of course, the word is more than the man, Jesus of Nazareth. He is, he is the God-man, who John later testifies, look at verse 15, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. That's just prophet talk for Jesus is God, for we just confessed. It's John the Baptist's version of what Jesus will himself say of himself in verses 28, 28 uh, chapter 14. I and the Father are one. Now in the prologue, John the Baptist, he's not the only witness to Jesus' deity. There's a second witness, another John, the Apostle John, the writer of the fourth gospel. John uses quite confusing language to make a very clear point. Jesus is the divine Son of God. Now let me walk through verses 1 through 3. If you've closed your Bibles, I invite you to open and look there and listen and learn or relearn. I'll do this quickly, but in the beginning, let's go phrase by phrase. In the beginning, so he, he takes us back to Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, was the Word that's a very interesting uh, title, one that certainly reflects the speaking God of Genesis, and God said, and God said, and God said. It also emphasizes the importance in the Gospel of John as Jesus, of Jesus being a revealer of himself and of the things of God by means of speech, words. I'll talk more about that later. And the word was with God. Well, in what way was he with God? Angels are sometimes with God. Is he with God in a very close way and or a unique way? Well, read on. The word was God. Well, that's as close as it gets. And keep reading. He was in the beginning with God. Okay, with God means more than in God's presence. What does it mean? Well, John goes on to tell us it means that God, the Father, with Jesus, the Son, and the Spirit, created the universe. And how much did Jesus create? Verse 3 answers, all things. How much? All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the sun and the moon and the stars, yes. The heavens and the earth, yes. The oceans and the rivers and the seas, yes. The, the plants and the trees, yes. The birds and the beasts, yes. The man and the woman, yes. All things were made through him. That's a lot of persons, places, and things. Creation is, as Frederick Dale Bruner puts it, Christomorphic and Christophoric. That is, it's Christ-formed and Christ-bearing. Since all things were made 
by him and for him. You see, we have not only been rescued by Jesus Christ in the middle of history, if you will, but we were made by him at the beginning of history. And of course, we shall return to him for judgment at the end of history. Amen, amen, and amen. Now let's return to the three questions. First, who is the word? Well, Jesus, Jesus is the word. Second, who is the word? Well, the word is more than Jesus the man. It is Jesus, the divine son of God, as testified by the two Johns. And third, who is the word? This Jesus of Nazareth, this God-man, he is light and life. He is light, the word is light, and he is life. Just look at verses 4 and 5. And in was life, and the life was the light of men, of all people everywhere at all times. As verse 5 continues and it shifts here to the present tense, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now here, darkness is mentioned. Now it's likely the darkness of the crucifixion being talked about. Humanity's most diabolical deed, creatures crucifying their creator. Uh, but even that deed, even that darkness didn't put out the light. The light shines on, present tense. It shines and shines and shines through Christ's resurrection, the sending of the Spirit, his Spirit-empowered church. Light pushes back. It pushes back the darkness. Light won at the resurrection, and light continues to win through the prevailing power of Pentecost. Just listen to the light language in verses 6 through 9. There was this man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone who is coming into the world. And yet, the spiritual darkness, this spiritual darkness and deadness, it remains for now. While the darkness is passing away, as John will write in, in his first letter, 1 John 2, 8, and the true light is already shining, the shadow of sin looms everywhere. And John knows this, and this is why his, his prologue turns less positive here. In verses 10 and 11, we're given two uh, parallel ironies and tragedies of his time. He, Jesus, was in the world, the world was made through him, so the creator came to his creation for his creatures, and yet the world did not know him or recognize him. He came to his own, to the, the Jewish people as the Jewish Messiah, and yet his own people did not receive him. So no recognition, no reception, no good. How terrible, how tragic, how, how dark, how dead. Well, that was then. And that is now. We live in a dark world filled with dead people, spiritually dark and spiritually dead. Christians, we need to wake up. That's my first point. We need to wake up to that reality. According to God's word, we aren't basically good. And people aren't searching for God so they might know him and worship him. No, the situation is really, really bad. When I was in college, I was part of a group of Christian students who would witness uh, to another college uh, nearby where non-Christians were, and, and sometimes just around town. And one day I approached a police officer, this was in Wheaton where I went, so he was on his lunch break. We had a good conversation. I asked him some questions. I asked him if he went to church. He answered no. I asked him if he believed in God. He answered no. I asked him if he thought people were basically good. He answered no way. 
From there, he went to share how he had seen too much evil in this world, especially in his occupation, for him to believe in God or optimistically in the goodness of human nature. Well, in my line of work for two decades as a pastor, I've seen my share of evil as well. If there's one thing I know to be true, it's that Christians sin and fall short of the glory of God. If it's another thing I know to be true, is that non-Christians sin and fall short of the glory of God. Yet that reality doesn't lead me away from God. Rather, it leads me to God. If the Bible claimed that people are basically good and because God likes good people, he became one of us to make things even friendlier between us, I'd say poppycock. The Bible, however, doesn't give us some Pollyannish poppycock. It gives us life as we know it if we open our eyes, if we're awake. The world is a dark place. The world is a dead place, spiritually speaking. Whether it's the major atrocities that make the headlines every day or our own everyday iniquities. When is the last time you said something cruel or in anger? When's the last time you gossiped, were greedy, overate, were full of yourself, lazy, jealous? When's the last time you sexually harassed someone in your mind? We don't easily escape the seven deadly sins, let alone 2,000 other transgressions. Shame on us all and guilt on us all. When John talks about grace in verses 14 through 17, the only son full of grace, what a description, full of grace, Grace came through Jesus Christ. We have all received grace upon grace. When John talks about grace embodied in the coming of Christ, embodied in the incarnation, it is a big deal. It is amazing grace that saves wretches like us. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us shows shows the grace of God, but it also shows it exposes the wretchedness of man. And I want us to see that. I want us to wake up to that reality. About a decade ago, someone discovered a handwritten uh, notebook of prayers written by the great American writer Flannery O'Connor. These prayers were written when she was in college. And like O'Connor's other writings, the, the prayers are very direct, authentic, raw. She wrote those prayers to God, not to be published sometime after her death, but here we are. You can buy a copy of them this Christmas online with a click of a button. In them, she regularly bemoans her sinfulness. For example, she confesses that she is a glutton for scotch oatmeal cookies and erotic thought. She ends that confession saying, there's nothing left to say of me, as if that is who she is. Alcoholic sweets, and sexual thoughts. Of sin, she writes, you can never finish eating it or ever digest it. It has to be vomited. And she goes on to lament that that prayer might be insincere because she really likes how she phrased it. She's really proud about how she writes about sin. Thus she fears that even these confessions of sin only compound her guilt. My brothers and sisters, her prayer journal is reflective of our collective soul. Wake up. The world is a dark and a dead place. Merry Christmas, according to St. John.
course, there's more. I thought about sitting down for effect, but I didn't do that. There's more to John's Merry Christmas than the world is dark and dead. He has some good news. He has some really good news to share, and he, he shares it in 21 chapters, starting in verses 12 and 13. He wants us to believe, to believe in Christ for salvation from the death and the darkness. But to all who receive him, who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now for these two verses, I'm also going to ask three questions. I'll move beyond who is the word. The first question is, what should we do? What should we do? Well, the answer is obvious. I've already said it. It's the second lesson, the second exhortation we are to believe in. We are to believe in Jesus. In verse 12, John phrases it this way, believe in his name, and then uh, slightly differently before that, receive him. We are to, to believe in him. That is, put differently, we are to receive him. That's John's way of talking about faith, faith. Now, interestingly, as many times as John uses faith language, pistuo, pistis is the Greek words used more than anywhere else in the whole of the New Testament, he never adds an adverb to it. He doesn't say believe deeply or believe completely or believe sincerely. And perhaps it's his way of saying to his works righteousness bound readers that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. There's nothing that we do so deeply. There's nothing that we do so entirely that God grants us his favor. It's simply receive and believe. Jesus did it all. Believing receives it all. That's the gospel according to John. on? Okay. Be glad I don't move around then. The second question is, why should we receive and believe? Uh, one major benefit is stated, and I love that we just confessed this a moment ago, and that is adoption. Adoption. God will, will make us his very own children. While we were once distant from God, now through Jesus Christ we have been brought near to him. We've become his very children adoption in his great book knowing god j.i packer writes this if you want to judge how well a person understands christianity find out how much he makes of the thought of being god's child and of having god as his father if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers his whole outlook on life it means he does not understand christianity very well Listen, we have been brought out of darkness and out of death into this, this light-giving and life-saving relationship, relationship with our Heavenly Father. Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. A third question is, how does this happen? How does this belief and this adoption, how does it happen? Well, John uses three knots, or one knot and two nors, to say something incredibly positive about God. Through faith in Jesus, we become children of God by means of God's grace. We are not regenerated by our own willpower. It is only by God's will and by his power. So listen, not only is the coming to Christ in the incarnation a sheer gift of grace to us, but also we coming back to him and welcoming him with believing, receptive hearts, that is a sheer gift of God as well. This is how Paul put it in Ephesians 2, by grace you have been saved through faith. We really believe, we really receive, but to be clear, this is not of your own doing. 
It is a gift of God. So in verses 1 through 11, we have what we can call the human tragedy. The world rejects the revelation of God's own son. In verses 12 and 13, however, we have the divine comedy and using comedy in the literary sense of a happy resolution of a conflict, the divine comedy. In this dead and dark world, there is some light and there is some life. Whoever welcomes the word, word welcome is welcomed into this eternal life and eternal light. As Charles Wesley put it, and as we'll soon sing, light and life he brings, risen with healing in his wings, mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them what, you know the line, born to give them second birth. He gives us second birth. Listen, verses uh, 12 through 13 are, are really a gospel invitation to us. Come to your creator, come to the, the word who made you, lived for you, died for you, rose again for you. Welcome him, trust in him, believe in him, believe in Jesus, the divine human savior sent into the world to save sinners, sinners like me and sinners like you. Now, as we're studying this prologue, this third Sunday in Advent, we've been seeking and uh, taking a little different a twist on this, uh, uh, three exhortations from these, these words. We've looked at wake up and believe in, and, and finally we'll end with speak out, speak out. And by that I mean this, since it is the divine design that humans witness to the word, to Jesus, let us follow John's example and humbly witness to about our humble God. Look at verse 14 and the start of verse 15. Those verses read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him. Now just stop there. John bore witness. How? Well, he talked. He cried out. He announced, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He did word work. St. Francis supposedly said, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Well, whoever said it, saint or no saint, St. John the Baptist and St. John the Apostle couldn't disagree more. The two Johns used words to preach the gospel about the word. In his book, Word Versus Deed, Dr. Dwayne Litfin, he argues about the necessity of verbal communication to convey the content of the gospel message. He writes, for example, it is simply impossible to preach the gospel without words. The, the gospel is inherently verbal and preaching the gospel is inherently a verbal behavior. I don't have Litvin's book, I haven't read it, I just read a review of it. So I don't know where he actually went in scripture to defend that claim, but he wouldn't need to go any further than the gospel of John. The evangelist John, he not only calls Jesus word, very interesting title, but he emphasizes the majestic power of words throughout his gospel. With an endless stream of words, uh, John's Jesus, the incarnate word, he speaks words about himself. Sentences like, they have kept your word. The words that you gave me, I've given these words to them. I have given you them your word. Your word is truth. All those kind of statements in John, unique to John, are not out of the ordinary. They're everywhere. That's how Jesus in John talks. There's this wonderful wordfulness of Jesus, the word. One scholar estimates that in John chapters 1 through 20, so it just goes to 21, so the, most of the gospel, Jesus' speech 
The sayings, his monologues, his, his dialogues occupies one third, uh, three fourths of the whole gospel. And even the few miracles, there's only a few miracles in John's gospel, the important signs, those signs need to be translated. Our Lord uses words to exegete his works. Now in the gospel of John, Jesus is joined by uh, John the Evangelist and John the Baptist, as well as every follower. Perhaps the most striking example is the Samaritan woman. After Jesus talks to her, then she talks about Jesus to her village. Uh, John 4, uh, 39 records, many Samaritans from that town believed in him. Why? Because of the woman's testimony, what she said. And that's the proclamation pattern. Someone hears the word about the word and they take that word to others. That's what John teaches here. That's what the apostles teach throughout the book of Acts as well. And the lesson is, the exhortation is to speak out, to speak out. My brothers and sisters, open your mouths and speak out. We don't offer the world a massage for their felt needs, but a message to save their souls and bodies from damnation. Any religion can offer advice on enhancing our our present human existence, talks on marriage and parenting, finances, diet, health, leadership, conflict, resolution, but only our true religion can offer a declaration of deliverance from death and from darkness. Christ alone is our, our life and our lights. And that's good news, that's great news. And don't be ashamed of it. It's the news that needs to make the news in our neighborhoods, in our schools, in our workplaces. And think about it, when is the last time? When is the last time you've shared it? When is the last time you shared in your own words that the word became flesh and dwelt among us? When is the last time you turned the, the chit chat of a conversation into a call to believe in Christ? Are we too busy offering the world Christian versions of therapy and politics and ethics that we've forgotten to speak out about the theology and the reality of Christmas? Speak out, speak out. A few years ago, I read a story of a pastor who uh, witnessed something very beautiful in a hospital room. Uh, a woman, a young woman had surgery to remove a tumor that was on her cheek. As part of that procedure, the, the surgeon, he had to cut a nerve, cutting the nerve, which he had to do, left her with this very unappealing, crooked, almost clownish smile. When the pastor visited her in post-op, the woman asked, is my mouth always going to look like this? And he replied, I'm sorry, but yes, it will. She nodded and was quiet. And her husband, who was standing by her bed, said to her, I like it. And he bent down and he placed his lips on hers forming them to her twisted mouth to show her that he loved her as is and that their kiss would still work. In the incarnation, God has done more than kiss our twisted mouths. Now God has opened the heavens and descended to the earth. The absolute became relative, the almighty, a baby, the divine human the eternal temporal, the immortal mortal, the infinite finite. Listen, the high, invisible God came down low in the eye-level Jesus, his son, so we could see what God is like in a physical, 
visible, audible, touchable way, God has made himself known to the world. And don't you think the human race should know that? Don't you think the human race should be deeply grateful for this immense and awesome descent? Well, if so, wake up. If so, believe in. And if so, speak out. Speak out. Christians, this Christmas, let us share this good news. Let us share this good news of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your gospel. It is good news. It is good news for this church, for all church. It is good news for the world, for a dead and dark world. Help us this Advent to be evangelists. Help us to to wake up to the realities around us. Renew our faith in Jesus. Fill us with your spirit so we might speak out, proclaiming the glories of your glorious Son. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen.